Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible in front of you, underneath one of the chairs. I would encourage you to grab one of those and open that to page 6. Our reading is from uh, pages 6 and 7, Genesis 15. We'll look at verses 7 to 21. Uh, I am a Ball State grad, and uh, I lived in Studebaker Complex when I was a freshman at at Ball State. And uh, every now and then I would go back home and uh, spend the weekend there. And I can remember getting home on Friday evenings, just really worn out from having 8 a.m. classes and staying up too late. And I would just be exhausted, and I would come back and just lay down on the couch in the evening and the TV was on and I just drift off to sleep and I could smell the food cooking in the kitchen. Mom was getting the food ready and got to see my sisters and it was just such a time of, of relaxation and peace. I just knew that I was home. I knew that Studebaker Hall was not my home. Uh, I was home there in my house in Carmel and it was just such a sweet, encouraging feeling. And I think you all know what I'm talking about. You know, as uh, Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, right? There's no place like home. Um, Our songs reflect this, don't they? Uh, Simon and Garfunkel sang Homeward Bound. Uh, Leonard Skinner sang Sweet Home Alabama. John Denver said, Take Me Home, Country Roads. That's kind of what we're all longing for, right? We, We want to be home. We love a sense of home. Now this, I know, isn't true for everybody. Some of you have had negative, bad experiences at home, but, but most of us feel the, the lure, the draw of a place called home. Well, the scriptures tell us actually that um, the human race used to have a home. We as a collective humanity used to have a home, and that was in the Garden of Eden. That was a place where home was just right. Everything was just right in that situation. The relationship between humanity and God, the relationship among one another, the relationship to the earth, everything was just perfect. But as you remember, our first parents sinned against God, decided to rebel against His commands, and the result of that is that God not only pronounced judgment on them, but also kicked them out of the garden kick them out of their home. And so there's a sense in which we could say since then we as a human race have been spiritually homeless. Genesis chapter 4 talks about Cain, a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Can't you identify with just that sense of restlessness living in this world? This sense that this isn't quite where I belong. This sense that I'm not really home. There's got to be another place where I can go where I am safe, where I'm comfortable, where I'm loved, where I'm accepted, where all the problems of this world don't exist. We're all longing for home. C.S. Lewis, you remember, said, if the desires that we have in this world can't be satisfied, the only logical explanation for that is that we were made for another world. We were made for a place called home, and we haven't arrived there yet. Well, we're in this study here uh, called The Life of Abraham. It's really just a study of the book of Genesis, and we're looking at these chapters up to about chapter 25 that describe the life of Abraham. And you might remember that when God came to Abram, 
We're calling him Abram now. He'll be renamed Abraham shortly. But when God came to Abram to begin with in chapter 12, he called him out of his home, this place called Ur. And he told him to go to another land, and he made a promise. God made a promise to Abram. It was like a twofold promise. One part of the promise was, Abram, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to have uh, descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the sky. So it was a promise about those descendants that would come from Abram. But there was a second part of that promise, and that is, Abram, I am going to put you in a land. This is a, a part of the Abrahamic covenant that we sometimes miss as Christians. We can think a little too hyper-spiritually sometimes, just thinking purely of spiritual things. But what God told Abram is that I'm going to give you a place to live, too. I'm not only going to give you a bunch of descendants, I'm going to give you a homeland, a land to live in. And that's what we're going to be reminded of here in this passage in Genesis 15, 7 through 21. So if you're able to stand, please do that. And let me read the Word of God to you. Genesis 15, starting with verse 7. We're kind of picking up mid-conversation here. And he, that is God, said to him, that is Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Spirit of the living God, come and open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so... Uh, there is this promise of the land that comes from God to Abram, and um, we're, we're going to kind of look at this passage from the perspective of a question that Abram, first of all, asks, and then we're going to see two answers that come from God. So let's begin first with this question. Abram offers a question to God. Again, this is mid-conversation, so you might remember two weeks ago when we were in the study of Abram. Um, we saw a complaint from Abram, remember? He 
said to God, you know, how am I going to have these descendants? I don't have any child at all right now. And in fact, Abram kind of pointed the finger at God and said, God, it's, it's your fault. I mean, you're the one who hasn't given me any children. And God responded with a reaffirmation of the promise. And God said, Abram, just hang on. You are going to have descendants that are more numerous than the stars of the sky. And chapter 15, verse 6, that verse immediately prior to the passage I just read, is one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. And it says, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you remember two weeks ago, we talked about what a significant event that was. This is Abram being justified before God, not on the basis of his behavior or action, but simply on the basis of his belief in what God has promised. Justification by faith, that great doctrine that comes up in the New Testament, is here in seed form for us in chapter 15, verse 6. The essence of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works, but by simply trusting, putting our faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's what chapter 15, verse 6 told us. But then the conversation continues, picks up again in verse 7. The dialogue continues, and Abram doesn't have a complaint this time, but he does have a question. And so, first of all, we see God speaking, and he says to Abram, verse 7, I'm the Lord. I brought you out from of the Chaldeans, that means I, I brought you out of your home to give you this land, that is the land of Canaan, that's your new home, and I'm giving this to you to possess. Now, Abram's response now is quite, not quite as blunt and direct as last time, not an accusation against God, but he does have this, this question, because Abram is not so sure. Last time it was a complaint, but, but now Abram is thinking, you know, <laughs> You've got to be kidding me, God. I mean, how is it that all these descendants are going to fill the land when I don't even have one child yet? Uh, how is it that we're going to occupy this land and this is going to be our homeland when this, this land of Canaan is filled with Hittites and Kenites and Jebusites and, and Gerbeshites? And how is this going to happen when uh, the armies of Kedar Laomar, that king that I just defeated a little while ago, is almost certainly regrouping and getting ready to come track us down for a revenge attack. And now you tell me that we're going to occupy this land? And so here's what Abram says in verse 8. How am I to know that I shall possess it? You've got to be kidding. How, how can I have assurance, God, that what you are saying to me is true? I mean, I know you keep saying this, but frankly, all indications are suggesting otherwise. It's like Abram is saying, on what basis should I believe this? How can I know? And that's a question that all of us have probably asked at some time in our spiritual lives, right? We read things in the Bible and we say, how can I know this is true? How do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? How do I know that Jesus really existed? How do I know that He died on the cross? How do I know that He is risen from the dead? This is actually a question that has occupied philosophers for centuries. How can we know anything, is what the skeptical philosopher would say. We really can't have confidence that we can know anything. Well, here it is in seed form in Abram. How do I know that what you say is true? Basically, what Abram is doing, friends, is he's bringing his doubts to God. Last time he was bringing his complaint to God. This time he's bringing his doubt. And I just want to pause and say a few things about doubt. Because all of us have probably dealt with it to some extent in our lives. 
we're just not so sure about everything that we read in the Bible. Well, there are two kinds of doubts. I want to contrast these. The first is there is a kind of an unbelieving doubt. That is a doubt that is rooted in unbelief. Uh, This is a kind of doubt that is kind of proud of the doubts. This is the doubt that comes from the person who's too smart to believe. This is the kind of doubt that comes from the person who prefers the doubt to belief. This is the person who proudly declares that he or she is a skeptic, not going to be duped, not going to be persuaded about things that are not true. They're skeptical. They're skeptical of everything. They adopt a worldview of skepticism. What I always like to say to the skeptic is, you know, there's one thing that you're not doubting, and that's your doubts. You're skeptical of everything, but you're not skeptical of skepticism. I mean, if you're going to be entirely consistent, shouldn't you doubt everything, including your doubts, including yourself and your own ability to figure everything out? Shouldn't you doubt that also, if you're going to be a fully consistent skeptic? So there's this unbelieving doubt that a guy named Henry Drummond Uh, summed up pretty well in terms of a contrast. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. If you're a person who struggles with doubts, I mean, is it it can't believe for you or is it won't believe? You don't want to. You, You really don't want to. Well, then we got a heart problem that we need to talk about. Unbelieving doubt But there's a second kind of doubt, and it's believing doubt. That's a kind of doubt that is rooted in belief. Now, I've already reminded you of chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, Abram, believe the Lord. Abram is a believer, and yet here he is bringing his doubts. Abram's doubt is a believing doubt. He believes and doubts. You know, that's possible, to believe and doubt carry with us some doubts. In fact, some doubt is actually healthy, I think. Tim Keller says that doubts are a little bit like antibodies. They kind of fight off infection, and sometimes our doubts about the Scriptures and about spiritual things can be very helpful because they push us to try to study and look into the Word and get answers to our questions and our doubts. And once you get those answers, your faith is stronger. It also helps you to be more sensitive, more respectful of others who have doubts so that you don't dismiss them quite so easily, but willing to listen and walk with those people as they wrestle with their doubts. Remember that passage in Mark chapter 9, the father of the the child who was possessed by a spirit, and he's speaking to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There's the example. He believes, and he kind of doesn't believe. He believes, and he doubts. He has a believing doubt. And if that's you, that's a healthy place, can be a healthy place to be. But friends, I would still encourage you, don't don't linger in your doubts. Work through them. It's not a badge of honor before the world to go about trumpeting your doubts. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, stop doubting and believe, Thomas. But you need to put forth the effort to work through those doubts. And remember what Jesus said Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So take Jesus and his word. So Abram's got this question. 
It's you promised me a home, God, but how do I, how do I know? And so now God's going to answer, and so those are the next two points of this message. The second part here is God's answer, which is a prediction, and then the third point is going to be God's answer, which is an action. So he answers in two ways, a prediction and an action. So first of all, God's first answer, this prediction. So go to verse 13. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Abram, now keep that question in mind, verse 8, how am I to know? Abram said, verse 13, God says, know for certain. So Abram is directly addressing Abram's question, know for certain. And then what God does here is he makes a prediction. He kind of acts as a prophet. He makes a prediction, and, and he says this, starting in verse 13, he says, your offspring, Abram, they're going to be sojourners, uh, like pilgrims. They're going to be in a land that is not theirs. It's, it's not their home. And they're going to be servants there. And in fact, they're going to be afflicted there. And it's going to go on for 400 years, but I'm going to bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they, that is your descendants, Abram, are going to come out with great possessions. And then in verse 15, he makes a prediction about Abram's death. So, if you're familiar with the scripture, the biblical story, you're probably able to figure out what God is talking about here, right? The, the, uh, the nation that Abram's descendants are going to serve, the land that they're going to find themselves in that is not theirs, is the land of Egypt. Uh, the nation that is going to be afflicted is the nation of Israel. We'll find the history of Israel coming forth as we continue through this story. Uh, verse 14, God says that they're going to be afflicted. They're going to be servants. That's how Israel was enslaved to Egypt. And at the end of, uh, well, it started verse 14, God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's Egypt. God promises, I'm going to bring judgment. You know the story, right? In the book of Exodus, God sends a plague of flies and gnats and blood and hail and actually brings to death the firstborn uh, in Egypt. And these are all ways of God judging Egypt. And then we see at the end of verse 14 that they, that is Israel, they're going to come out of Egypt with great possessions. And we even see that in the book of Exodus where we see that Israel plunders the Egyptians. And when they escape through the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses, they take out great possessions that they found in Egypt. And so here God is answering Abram's question by giving a prediction. This is what's going to happen. And it does happen, friends. 700 years later, about six, six to 800 years later, is when these events are fulfilled. God predicts the future, and what God predicts is going to happen will happen, because God knows the future, and God knows the future because God has planned the future. All of your years are in His hands. All of them have been determined and planned before even one of them came to be. God is sovereign over all things that take place. He's the one that declares the beginning from the end. He's not just a God who knows the future. He's a God who plans the future. And this is how God chooses to answer Abram. He gives a prediction. And so when you see predictions in the Scriptures, like for instance when Jesus in John 14 says, I am going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again, and I'm going to take you to where I am. 
In other words, I'm going to take you home. I am preparing a place for you right now. When Jesus makes that prediction, you can count on it. There is a place called home that Jesus is getting ready for you, and that's what he's doing right now. The future is in God's hands. Jesus declares what he's doing for us, preparing a home. And this is how God answers this question. He gives a prediction. Now, it goes on here, and we'll notice in verse 16 that we get an answer to the question of when exactly is this going to happen. We know it's six, seven hundred years in the future, but notice verse 16. God says, and they, that's Israel, shall come back here, that's the promised land, the land of Canaan, home, they shall come back home in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, the Amorites is just a way of describing the, the Canaanites. And so what God is saying here is that the, the time in history when Israel is going to be delivered from Egypt and brought back into the promised land is when the iniquity, the, the evil, the wickedness of this people, Amorites, reaches its full zenith. When that happens, the Red Sea is going to be parted, Israel is going to come out, and they're going to occupy the, the, uh, the land of Canaan. The, the Amorites in the Scriptures and the Canaanites, the Amorites are, are sometimes described, uses a word just to describe all the Canaanites. At the very end of this passage, we see they're distinct from other people groups. But the, the point you need to know is that those living in the land of Canaan were exceedingly wicked people. And so we even get a, a peek into this in Deuteronomy 18. This is why God was always telling his people, don't be like the people in the land of Canaan. Don't be like the Amorites and the Perizzites, and the Hittites. So he says, when you come into the land, the promised land that the Lord God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. That includes the Amorites. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. In other words, because that's what they do. The Amorites burn their children. I mean, that's unconscionable. But that was apparently a regular practice. That's how wicked these people were. And it goes on, and it talks about their practicing divination, telling fortunes, interpreting omens, sorcerers, charmers, mediums, all sorts of occultic practices and contact with people of the dead. And so what God is saying here is that when their wickedness gets to a certain point, I'm going to punish them. And the instrument that is going to be used to punish these Amorites is my people Israel. And I'm going to release them from Egypt, and they're going to go into the land of Canaan, and they're going to give the Canaanites the justice that they deserve. That's what God is saying here. Now, I know that might raise questions in your mind, because here's one of the frequent criticisms of the Old Testament, and what tends to make people sometimes doubt the Christian faith. A frequent criticism is all the violence and war that exists in the Bible, and sometimes people will say that God is a bloodthirsty God. But one thing I want you to notice, that's probably an entire sermon in itself to deal with that question, and I don't know, maybe that question will come at Sunday school to, to Pastor Brian, it would be a good one to deal with, but I want you to notice not so much the war here, but I want you to notice the patience of God, because notice He says this is going to take 400 years for the wickedness, the iniquity of the Amorites to reach its completion, 400 years. That's how long God was waiting, four centuries for them to turn from their sin and to ask for mercy and forgiveness. 
That's patience, friends. God was not going to act until the Amorites reached a certain point that was beyond return and that fully deserved the justice of God. Uh, Romans 2 tells us this, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His patience should lead you to say, I want to turn from my sin, I want to call out to God for mercy, forgive me and make me right. And these Amorites had a lot of time for that. God was exceedingly patient. So see that before you get too hung up on the judgment that takes place in the holy wars that are described later in the book of Joshua in in particular. A guy named Derek Kidner says this, this is an act of justice, not aggression. This isn't ethnic cleansing. This isn't racism. It's an act of justice. Until it was right to invade, and not a moment before, God's people must wait, even if it costs them centuries of hardship. Let's not forget, God's people are enslaved during those 400 years while they're waiting for the Amorites' wickedness to reach its completion. So what a great demonstration here of the patience of God. But let me say this also, God is patient, but friends, His patience does come to an end. And it came to an end with the Amorites. It is limited. And that is true for all nations. And that includes the United States of America. God's patience is limited. How long will it take before the iniquity of the Americans is complete? I don't know. But that point will come unless we repent and turn back to God through Christ. Here's what it says in Psalm 19, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. The Amorites in the United States. Pray for revival, friends. God is merciful, but pray for revival in our nation. So that's God's first answer. There's a, there's a prediction about Israel being enslaved in Egypt and then being released to bring justice on the Amorites. But the third point and second answer that God gives is not a prediction, but an action. An action. God does something. So, <clears throat> look at this. Verse Nine. Actually, the first thing God does after Abram asks this question, how shall I know? Okay, How shall I know that I shall possess the land? And God says, get me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. <laughs> now, I don't know what Abram was thinking there. It was like, that's not exactly my point. You know, I was looking for something a little clearer. Uh, maybe Abram kind of knew what God had in mind, because it seems like perhaps that's true, because Abram gathers up these animals. They're about three years old. That's just so they're in a mature uh, age. And um, he gathers them up in verse 10, and it says that he cut them in half and then laid each half over against the other. Did not cut the birds. Not sure why. Maybe they're too small. Um, But he gets all these animals, and and he cuts them up, and he lays them down in, in rows. You know, to us, this is... Very strange, right? I mean, what in the world is he doing? Uh, If you lived in the time of Abraham, however, you would know that this was a very common procedure or ritual for ratifying a covenant. And this is what God is doing. He's making a covenant. You see that in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. 
And part of that covenant is a promise to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. What often accompanies covenants in the New Testament and the Old Testament are, are rituals. I mean, we just saw a sacrament, right? We just saw baptism, which is a sign of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is also a sign of the new covenant. Covenants are accompanied by signs, rituals, ceremonies. That's what's going on here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, not instituted yet, long before the time of Jesus. But nonetheless, there's a ceremony, a ritual that's going on here. And, and here's the idea. What God is saying is, get these animal parts, lay them down, and here's what they would do. When there was a covenant relationship between two parties, both of those parties together would walk down in between the cut-up pieces of animals. They would just walk through as if to say to each other as they're making this covenant, if I break my end of the covenant, if I don't uphold my obligation of the covenant, let me become like these cut-up animals. That, that's the point. It's like these two parties are walking through this line calling curses upon themselves on the condition that they break the covenant. The, the fancy uh, theological word is self, excuse me, self-maledictory oath. That's what this is. A self-maledictory oath. Uh, you might remember, maybe if, when you were a kid, maybe kids still do this, I don't know, they make a promise and they say, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now, you didn't know it, but that is a self-maledictory oath. What, what you're saying is I'm making a promise, and I'm going to invite something awful to happen to me, a needle in my eye, if I don't uphold my part of the bargain. And so that's what God is doing here. This is the, or what God is commanding Abram to do, is Abram lays down these pieces. It's this covenant ratification ceremony. But now watch what happens very interesting. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, if you know the scriptures, you'll notice that very often smoke, fire represents God, you know, burning bush, for instance, Exodus 3. This is a theophany. Uh, that is an appearance of God. This is representing God, the fire pot and the flaming torch. They're, they're they're a symbol. They're representing God. So God is appearing to Abram here in a very uh, miraculous and special way. But, but notice what happens here. Who is the one passing between the pieces? Or let me ask it a different way. Where's Abram? And you know what? He's asleep. <laughs> Verse 12, sun was going down, deep sleep fell on Abram. Abram's not passing through the pieces. God is, and only God. And this is God's way of walking through this, this, this covenant ceremony. It's like God is invoking a curse on Himself. It's like God is saying, I am taking upon Myself the full obligations of this covenant relationship. This is God saying, I commit Myself to death if this covenant is not fulfilled. Now, you might know where that is ultimately fulfilled. As we look ahead into the New Testament, and we read the story of Jesus Christ, and we find that there was this event on Calvary where Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross, and He hung there and died. And Galatians 3 tells us what's happening. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The curse for breaking the covenant fell on Jesus. And it wasn't because Jesus didn't uphold his end of the bargain. It was because you and I didn't uphold our end of the bargain, and yet the curse fell on him and not on you and me. That's, that's the gospel. And that's what Genesis 15 is giving us a peek into. The self-maledictory oath falls on God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here is the assurance that you have. How do, how do I know that I'm going to make it into the land? That's Abram's question, and so God gives a prediction. But then he also does this kind of strange action that points to the gospel. And you friends might have a very similar question today. You might be thinking, yeah, I sure hope I'm going to heaven, but how do I know? How can I know? And you might think, well, I, I'll do better. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to say swear words anymore. I'm going to go to church as much as I can, and I'm not going to watch bad movies and I'm just going to do the best I can, and maybe I'll get there. But friends, listen, the only way to know that you're going to get there is trust in what Jesus has already done. You can't do enough to remove the curse from you. Only Jesus has done that, but if you place faith in Him, it will be credited to you as righteousness, as chapter 15, verse 6 tells us. This ultimately is our true and lasting home, friends. This is the place we're longing for, the place that is safe, the place that is comfortable, the place where we are loved, the place where we are accepted, the place where all sorrows and injustices and pain and death and sin and wickedness are all removed, that place exists and it is with Jesus Christ. And on the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes again, that we're told is the home of righteousness. Are you going to be there, friends? How can you know? You can know by putting your faith in Christ and Him alone. This is what John says later in 1 John, These things I have written to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you're homeward bound. Say, Jesus, come quickly. Won't it be wonderful when we're home finally, reunited with loved ones who have died in the Lord, reunited with one another, and most of all, sitting at the throne of Jesus and giving Him the praises that He deserves. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that gives us hope in a hard, difficult world. Thank you for taking the curse upon yourself, Jesus. Thank you for paying the penalty that we should pay but don't have to pay because you did it for us. We're grateful, we're thankful, and we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.